Good morning, everybody. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Great to see you here. Uh, We are talking about who you are. That's a great question to ask. Who are you? Who are you? Finding the true you. Psychologists tell us that us having a really clear understanding of who we are has great benefits to it. We have greater purpose in our life, greater peace. And this one, we make better decisions and fewer regrets if we have clarity about who we are. Now, do we have any practical examples of that. Well, Anthony Rendon, who played for the world champion, Washington Nationals, right? He said in an interview, thank you, that's great. The first service, total silence. I don't know what the deal was with that. Um, World champion, Washington Nationals. He said in an interview with the uh, Post, he said, I don't want to be known as a baseball player. Fascinating. I don't want to be known as a baseball player. I want to be known as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus who plays baseball. He's a clear sense of who he is. Great things happen when you know who you are. You make good decisions for your regrets. Now, let's talk about the other side of the coin. You got the Houston Astros who are totally confused about who they are, right? They think they're sign stealers. Causes about who would have thought they, I mean, why would they think they could get away with that? It was so obvious, but I mean, that's Texas for you, right? Ended in catastrophe. So you want to know who you are. It's really important, okay? So here's what we said last week. This story, as you're reading through the biography of Jesus as captured by John, the gospel of John, the good news about Jesus of John, and you read something, you might come across something like, what is that or what does that mean or I'm scratching my head, what is that? Okay, it's all about a love story. So you filter everything through love. So the first sign, not a miracle, John doesn't call it a miracle, calls it a sign, because a sign is different than a miracle. A sign is something deeper. Like, when when you're driving into this great city of Washington, D.C., everybody, you see these signs. They start hundreds of miles away. It says, Washington, D.C., 150 miles, right? You don't stop there. You haven't made it there. You haven't made it to Washington. There's more and more more signs. So that was the first sign, changing the water into wine. Huge ceremony. It's wedding. Jesus is the groom. John the Baptist says he's a groom. Grooms in first century Jewish perspective, right? Grooms wore crowns. What did Jesus Christ wear on the day he was crucified? He wore a crown. You identify the groom of a wedding through the fact that they're wearing a crown on their wedding day. So all of this is filtered through a love story. Let's read this piece, John chapter 2, because it has a lot to do with our everyday life and how are we living full and free and powerful in in, in God, or are we experiencing something else? This is really important. John chapter 2, here we go, starting verse number 13. When it was almost time, For the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins, the money changers, and overturned their tables. Whoa, he's breaking bad in the temple. Verse 16, to those who sold doves, he said... Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. The temple... He had spoken of was his body, and after he is raised from the dead, 
His disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. The temple. Why do you go to the temple? Right? There's only one temple. It's in Jerusalem at this time. Why do you go to the temple? You go to the temple because you want to meet with God and you make a sacrifice. Two reasons. You're going to go there to meet with God and you're going to make a sacrifice. And the temple is supposed to be for all nations. So those who are Jewish, they come and they learn more about their God. Those who are not, they come and they're introduced to who God is. Now, what's going on here? So you have the court of all nations or the court of the Gentiles where all people are supposed to come and we're going to be educated about God. And in that court where it's supposed to make it as easy as possible for people to be introduced to the God of the Bible, what you have is Walmart going on. You have Costco on a busy Saturday afternoon. So they have erected all kinds of barriers for people understanding who God is. They're making it as difficult as possible. Have you ever been on like a high-secured facility, been to a, a government institution or a military base, a high-secured facility, right? You, they stop you. You get out of you get out of your car, they want to check your license, they want to look underneath the hood of the car, they want to look in the trunk, they look in the car, and there's all these barriers, you've got to zigzag through. Why are we going to make it difficult for you to get into? They were making it difficult. For some reason, they were confused about their identity, even though God had told them clearly over and over and over and over and over and over again. Don't make it difficult for people. Acts chapter 15, the most important council of the Christian church to ever happen is in Acts chapter 15. It's called the Jerusalem Council. They concluded these remarks. Do not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. The question right from the outset of this, are we clear about our identity, both individually and then corporately as a community? Do we try to make it difficult? Some people tell me, you know, churches make it difficult for people to turn to God. Like we do things to make it difficult. Our identity is not supposed to make it difficult for people to turn to God. That was the clear call from the Jerusalem Council. And this is what they are doing. They're having an identity crisis. Now, second thing I'll say is this. The person who is handpicking the high priest of the temple, the most powerful position in the temple, the high priest, the person who's doing it is wicked King Herod. Handpicking. He's wicked. Wicked guy. He's like killing his family members. He's got a very short trigger finger. He's killed his son, kills wives, kills, just, just kills everybody. Caesar said, it's safer to be Herod's pig. Not many pigs running around in Israel. Safer to be Herod's pig than it is to be his own son, right? So this is a really, really bad guy. And he's the one that's handpicking and the priestly system is allowing him to handpick. They've bought into this whole process. It's totally corrupt. So what happens is it Passover, right? The big time of year you come. So you come and you'll say you're coming from the Sea of Galilee and it's a long trek. It's days of trek. So you're walking and you got your lamb and you get there and you walk into the temple area with the lamb because you're going to make your sacrifice, right? You're going to make your sacrifice to God. And they look at the lamb and said, no, that lamb's no good. You're like, no, that lamb's good. You're like, no, and it's no good. You got to get rid of that lamb, get rid of the lamb. Well, you're not going to go back home and pick another lamb. Okay. So they say, you got to buy one of our lambs. And so they have inflated prices on the lambs. And what flock does the lamb come from? It comes from the flock of the high priest. Are you catching my drift now? So they're jacking up prices. Now, you've traveled to other countries or maybe you've exchanged currency at some point in your life. They have to exchange currency. There's a temple currency and they've inflated the exchange price. So they're gouging people on the sacrifices and they're gouging people on the money that they actually need to buy the sacrifices to make the whole thing happen. So the system is completely corrupt. It's totally corrupt. Whatever we control as human beings, we corrupt. Whatever we control, we corrupt. 
Now, there's three levels to look at, and these are really important. Level number one is you look at this and you say, well, Jesus is shutting down a marketplace. Because if you don't know anything else and you just, you, you're an alien from outer space and you come and you read this, like, oh, okay, well, he, shut, he says this shouldn't be a marketplace. Like, there should, nobody should sell cookbooks or salsa. Our youth group has sold salsa before. Nobody should do that. It's a marketplace. It's, it's totally wrong. Kind of, sort of, but not exactly. All right? This is not what Jesus had in mind. But that's level number one. Here's level number two. Let's say you've studied some history and you know the things I just said. You know about the high priest. You know about the corrupt system. And so level number two is you say, oh, okay, I got it. I know what this is really all about. Because level two is I understand he wants to deal with the corruption. And anything that human beings touch, we corrupt. There's a third level, everybody. Level number three is this. From a first century Jewish perspective, they would have seen Jesus' actions here as shutting down the sacrificial system. When he runs out all the animals and he turns over the tables that they would actually use the money to buy the animals, that means he's throwing a major wrench. He's shutting down the sacrificial system. You've got to ask yourself why. Why is he shutting down the sacrificial system? Because that is the way they would have seen it. Now, that's the key point about this. This is the deeper level that John's trying to take us to, and that's the first century Jewish perspective. I said this last week. We're taking a trip to Israel in November of this year, 2020. If you're interested in going, we have brochures on the guest services table out there. But this is the reason we're going, because it's a great educational experience, because now you can understand where from a first century perspective, what is the deeper meaning that's being talked about here in the gospel of John? First century Jewish perspective, Jesus Christ is shutting down the sacrificial system. Now, I want to talk a lot about love today, so I need to throw this out right in the beginning. Because a lot of times when I talk about love, what people say to me is, say, okay, John, you're saying it's all about love. I mean, that love means just you do whatever you want. Like we misinterpret the idea of love. Say, oh, yeah, yeah, I got love. I, got, I mean, just everybody do whatever you want. We have a great example of do whatever you want. It's right here in John chapter 2. The high priest was doing whatever he wanted. It was good for him. It was terrible for everybody else, but it was really, really good for him. We have another great example. There's a whole book about it. It's called the book of Judges in the Bible. It is a book filled with all kinds of pain and tragedy and heartache because we're told over and over in that book that everybody was doing whatever they wanted to. So here, here's the thing about love. Love is not do whatever you want. Love sets limits. It is very unloving to say do whatever, do whatever you want because love always sets limits. Apple News, you can look this up for yourself. Apple News um, came out with an article about three or four months ago. And if you're a parent or you're thinking about having a kid, it's a great time to listen up right now. They said, scientifically speaking, here are the five things that successful parents do to raise successful kids. Scientifically speaking, here's the five things that successful parents do to raise successful kids. I'm only going to give you the first one. You've got to look up the other four on your own, okay? All right, here's number one. Number one thing they do is they limit screen time. I know that sounds crazy, right? They limit screen time. I want to draw your attention to that word limit. That's what you do. You want to be successful. You want to be loving. You limit. Now, I've said this before. Please, nobody try it. If you're watching online, there's a kid around, hands over the ears right now. If you're in the room, don't try this. Okay, but I've said this before. I grew up right down the street here. I grew up right off of George Mason Drive. And what we used to do as a bunch of kids at night is we would go and lay down in George Mason Drive and see who could stay there the longest before the car got to you. Like who, who could hang, who could hang. Don't do this. Okay, now, we never let our parents know about that. We never let our parents know about that. But, 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 but what, if, what if my mom, what if my mom was there, she showed up one night, and she saw me doing that with all my friends, and she was on the side of the road, and after, you know, I jumped up, she's like, great job! 
Next time, Johnny, see if you can stay there longer. See, no, we would say that's a terrible parent because love sets limits. There's boundaries. It is extraordinarily unloving. It is extraordinarily unloving to cheer somebody on to their destruction. That's why you can be very careful. You do you might lead to somebody's destruction, and it's no business of ours. Yeah, go, 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 go right down to your destruction. My mom would never do that. If she did, we'd say she's unloving. That's why I never told her, because if I told her, she would have tried to stop me, right? So are we clear on that? Love sets limits. I just need that disclaimer to be out there in the beginning. Why is Jesus breaking bad in the temple? What is he doing? He is shutting down the sacrificial system because the sacrificial system does not work. And that is the deeper level of understanding. Yes, the system is corrupt. That's level two. But level three understanding, first century Jewish perspective, he's saying this system no longer works. So the historian Josephus tells us this. He's a Jewish historian. He's working with the Romans. And he tells us during one, pa- one Passover, one time a year, one Passover, as many as two 150,000, I'll say that again, 250,000 lambs were sacrificed. That's a lot of blood, everybody. 250,000 in a very short amount of time were sacrificed at the temple. Now, here's the thing about temples, okay? Every temple is built on a river or a spring. There's flowing water, there's running water. We call it living water, right? Every single one. The Garden of Eden is actually a temple. Don't have time to explain that right now, but that's clearly the language that God is using in the book of Genesis. God is building a temple, and there's a river that's there, all right? The first temple, Temple of Solomon, built on a spring. Second temple, built at the same location on a spring. Ezekiel has a vision of a temple, right? And a, and it, a river is flowing out of it, and it starts as a small, but the water, every single one is built on a... Okay, so the temple in Jerusalem, during the time that Jesus is there, out of the side, out of one side, out of one side of the temple, flows all the water and the blood from those 250,000 lambs. It was a river of blood, and it flowed right down into the Kidron Valley. And so that night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, he had to go to the garden and he had to cross the Kidron Valley. That's about it. So as he crosses, he is slopping his way through a river of water and of blood and it's flowing out. Now, Jesus says in this John chapter two that he's the temple. Do you recall if you've ever read it before or if you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, that Jesus is on the cross and the last thing that happens is, right? The spear in the side and what happens? Blood and water. He's the new temple. Just like the temple. Just like the temple in Jerusalem. It's flowing right out. He's the new temple. And we are called temples of the Holy Spirit as well because we're created in His image. He is shutting down the sacrificial system because it doesn't work. I'd like to read you. I could read you a lot of passages. Let's just read Hebrews 10. It's excellent. The old system under the law of Moses, that was the sacrificial system, was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, the good things to come. Not the good things themselves. They weren't that, the old sacrifices. The sacrifices under that system were repeated. Now, notice these words, again and again. You get the frustration from that? Again and again and year after year. But they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could provide, have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. Please pay attention to some of these words. Guilt doesn't work. 
would have disappeared. But instead, and here it is, verse 3 is really important, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year, reminded us of our sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you do not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again. You're getting the feeling, which can never take away sins. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so, for he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I'll never again, never again remember Remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. Sacrifices at this point when this is written is a global phenomenon, a global phenomenon all around the world. We know this from studying history. We know that sacrifices were taking place all over the world, not just in Jerusalem. Like many, many cultures and many people all around the world made animal sacrifices. When this situation happens in John chapter 2, when Jesus goes into the temple and he shuts down the sacrificial system, 40 years later, that temple is torn down. And those sacrifices never started up again. And slowly but surely, over a period of time, for the past 2,000 years, sacrifices have stopped. They've ceased. It's been a phenomenon. All cultures did it, and now... We don't have sacrifices anymore. Jesus is saying here in Hebrews 10 that the way to experience the life of God and the power of God is not to stare, to be constantly reminded of your sin and your shame. That doesn't work. We don't become the people that God is. We don't, we don't reflect the image of God by staring at our sin and our shame. It does not transform my life. It won't transform my life. And I can't just show you your sin. So you show it, show it, show it. And somehow you're going to magically transform. That's not the way it works. But that's the thing that we're drawn to in our culture. You can't have a full and free life by doing that. I have a pastor that I know, great guy, really knows the Bible, but he says this all the time. He says, I've got to embrace my sin. I've got to embrace it. I just got to face it. I got to own it. And he, every day, he says, every day, I just need to embrace my sin. And I just want to say, this is exactly what Jesus Christ is talking about. If like you're holding on to your own sin or you're holding on to the sins of others, that is not the transformative power of Jesus Christ. It will never work. That is why Jesus threw a wrench in the sacrificial system and that is why the words in Hebrews written, it is a constant reminder and that constant reminder is going to drive you down, not up. It won't work. Philippians 3.19 says this. Paul's talking about a group of people that are headed, they're headed in the wrong direction. He says their glory is their shame. Their glory is their shame. We're not to glory in shame. We're to glory in the love of Jesus Christ and to embrace that. Brene Brown. Brene Brown is considered, she's a TED Talk superstar back when TED Talk used to be just a huge, huge thing. She was a rock star on TED Talk, right? She's the world's leading researcher on shame, of all things. Who would want to grow up and be that? I want to be the leading researcher on shame. But this is what she did, right? But she has some really good things to say. First of all, she says this. She says, the United States of America is swimming in shame. And what we've tried to do for decades now is say, you know what? You do you. Don't be ashamed of anything. Don't let anybody else put their morality on you. But somehow, in the midst of all that, she said, the shame waters are growing higher, not less. We're absolutely swimming in shame and that we need to stop shaming ourselves. And shame actually fuels addictive behavior and broken, 
brokenness in our own souls. We have to be willing to say, yes, I'm not perfect. Of course we're not perfect. Of course we're not perfect. You say, I am not perfect, but I am worthy of being loved. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not perfect, but yes, I am worthy of being loved. She says the absence of love always leads to suffering. We need to have a strong, we have to cultivate a strong belief in ourselves that our worthiness of being loved is there. Now, case in point, let's just say this. I'll use myself as an example. Let's say that one night, even though I have a really important meeting the next day and I need to be on uh, for it, oh, maybe like I'm speaking in church, okay? And, and I choose to stay up really, really late the night before and then I sleep through my alarm a bunch of times and I arrive late at that meeting and I just do horrible. I just, I just do horrible. And then I walk away from that experience and I say, I'm an idiot. I'm a failure. I'm a loser. She says, you've got to stop doing that. That if you really want to change, you want to be kinder, you're not going to change because you're an idiot. You're a loser. You're a failure. Instead, you back up. You are not that story. That's not your story. Your story is not that God created in the image of God, right? That God created an idiot, a loser, and a failure. The story is, is God created somebody in his own image with a story that's intended for goodness and greatness to reflect Almighty God, and you're just making some bad decisions. And so next time, instead of saying, I'm an idiot, I'm a loser, I'm a failure, separate yourself and say, you know, next time I'll make better decisions. There's a big difference between the two because if you try to motivate yourself with shame, all you're doing is fueling other bad behavior in your life or bad thinking. It's going to break you. It's going to break you. We need to stop saying that. She says, we shame ourselves a lot of times by saying stuff like this. I am never good enough. I'm never good enough, right? And then she lists all these things. I'm never perfect enough. I'm never thin enough. I'm never powerful enough. I'm never successful enough. I'm never smart enough. I'm never safe enough. I'm never certain enough. I'm never extraordinary enough. These type of things, this type of message that is in our culture that we fill with our minds fuels bad decisions. Now, people frustrate us. And a lot of times when people frustrate us with their behavior or whatever, we try to motivate them how? By shame. Because that's what she says. Our culture is just, there is a, a flood. It's like a torrent. The river is powerful and it's flowing that way. And so the natural reaction, the first thing is I shame myself or I shame other people or I do both, whatever. And so we're going to make somebody change by shaming them. She says, it doesn't work. She says, Shame is usually the root of the problem. It's never the cure. Shame is usually the root of the problem. It's never the cure. And if that's your first knee-jerk reaction, I can't stand what this person can't stand with. I don't like what those people out there are doing, whatever. That if you think you're going to change them, or in this case, we're a church, right? You're going to make them godly. You're going to make them great followers of Christ. They're going to be transformed by the power of the Spirit because I've shamed the heck out of them. She says it doesn't work, and most importantly, Jesus says it doesn't work. That's why he sets such down the sacrificial system, because it is something that it is not working. We should not embrace shame. We should not pour shame out of us to other people. Instead, we need to talk to people about the love of God, because that's truly, powerfully what changes other people. What we need is love. Shame is the root of the problem. It's not the cure of the problem. Let me tell you something about the power, the power of love, the power of love to transform. Do you all know what the, uh, you know, we're into bestseller. Right? You ever read the New York Times, best, like what's on the list or what, something like that? I do. Figure out what's bestseller, right? So we, those are things we're into. Does anybody know what the number one bestseller all-time book is? Anybody know? Anybody? Just take a wild stab at it. The Bible. Thank you. Very educated. You're also in church, so <laughs> kind of gives the whole thing away, doesn't it? The Bible, by far. Like, man, Harry Potter sold a lot of books, but the Bible's like, Harry Potter's down here, and it's like, wham, like every year, it just dwarfs everything else. Now, listen, everybody, the Bible is a collection of books. How many books? There's 66 of them. 
written over a period of 1,500 years by about 40 different authors with one theme. So it's a collection of books. So out of that collection of books that's the greatest, most influential book of all time, which book is the number one book of all of those 66 books? Gospel of John. That's what we're studying, okay? I just... It's the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is the number one most influential book in the entirety of human history. Hands down. Not even, clo- not even close. Not even close, John. Not even close. So number one. Now, what's the most famous verse in the Gospel of John? John 3, 16. For God, what? God didn't just love. God so loved the world. God so loved the world. It's a story about love because that's where the power is. John wants to tell us how to have a life that's full. I want you to have an abundance of life, the words of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John, an abundance of life. And it happens because you're staring and thinking and meditating on his love. Colossians 3 says we should clothe ourselves in love, not shame. Love. And we need to tell that love. We need to tell that love to other people. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Powerful prayer. I think it starts in verse 16, Ephesians chapter. Powerful, powerful prayer that's there. It says, you want to live a life that's transformed and filled with the power of God? Then you need to know how wide and high and long and deep is the love of God, not the shame of God. That if we want to be filled with the power of God, then we need to be filled with his love. Now, I'll give you a great example of this. Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, and there's a book that's been written. um, David Blight actually won the Pulitzer for this just recently. Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Douglass was born, brilliant guy, great speaker, great orator. Born into slavery right on here, here in the eastern shore of Maryland. And he saw all the horrors of slavery. It was terrible. But he was taught to read. And he began to read the Bible and study the Bible. And he went to church. And he heard. And after a period of time, he heard more and more about Jesus and heard about the love of Jesus Christ, Frederick Douglass. This is the early 1800s. Blight tells us that eventually he was converted. And as a result of that conversion, he wanted to convert the entire world. Now, here's the most important thing. This is what Blight says that he was so consumed by the power of the love of God that it so transformed him, that power, that he wanted to love not just fellow slave, but he loved slave owner. Now, this is somebody who hated slavery and the pain that it brought, but he was so deeply, shame didn't do that, everybody. That's the power of love. This is what the story is all about, and this is why Jesus Christ is shutting down the sacrificial system because it's a continual reminder of our sin and our shame. We do not need to be continually reminded of our sin and shame. That's what the sacrifice is. We instead need to be continually, continually reminded of the love of Jesus Christ. Now, we gather here every week. It's interesting. Hebrews 10, that we just talked about shutting down the sacrificial system. It's very interesting, everybody, that at the end of that chapter, it says, whatever you do, don't stop gathering together like this. Don't stop having church. Why? N.T. Wright tells us from a first century Jewish perspective that if you went to church in the first century, you would think you were walking into an education center because it was there that you were learning about who Jesus is and his story and his love. So we gather together to be reminded once again, not of shame. We gather once again to hear about his amazing, phenomenal, transformative love that has the power to change the world. We come together and we do that, and then we walk out, and we make sure that we share it here and there all over the place. 
This is what we're called to do. The question is, do I see that as my identity? That's the identity of Jesus Christ. Every single person in this room, every single person online, that's your identity. Will you take up that identity and live it out? Because only then can you find the true you, because this is the true you. This is what you were called to do. And it's really important. This is what changes us in a profound way. I was reading a story about an organization in California that works with people who have been involved in crime like their entire lives. They got started before they even turned teenagers, like deep in crime. Recidivism, really, really high. They gathered this group. They started this group. And what they began to do, this is the big thing, the big takeaway from this is, they said they had to teach these people a different way to talk about themselves. And stop talking. Had to stop shaming themselves. They had to stop that story they're telling themselves. The title of this message today is you have a new story to tell yourself. Are you willing to tell that new story? Because once they started telling a new story about themselves and they started telling a new story about other people, that cycle of crime, they're having a great success rate in it being broken. That's the power. That's the power. You have a new story to tell yourself. That doesn't mean you don't deal with the stuff in your life. That would be irresponsible. You have to deal with it. Now, I'm a firm believer in this. I worked for UPS for a bunch of years. Everything about the Bible somehow, somehow can be traced back to the United Parcel Service. Okay? <laughs> My first day of driving that big brown truck, I pulled near Landmark Mall, uh, Duke Street, got on 395. My supervisor who rides with you for the first three days, he's sitting there in the jump seat right next to me, and he starts to instruct me. This is how you drive the UPS way. First thing he said, keep your eyes up. He says, you aim high in steering. You got a big windshield. That's where you're looking almost all the time. You're up and you're moving forward. Now you got to get your small mirrors, the side mirrors, you got to get them set. I mean, he's like big on that. Before you leave the warehouse, you must set those side mirrors and you've got to know who's behind you, who's around you. You got to deal with them. You got to deal with stuff that's behind you. Here's the thing, everybody. Our eyes need to be up and we need to be looking ahead and thinking about the love of Jesus Christ. And then every now and then we make a glance back to the mistakes and the imperfections and the things we've done wrong and we have to deal with it. But we don't stare at it. If you stare at it, it's going to fuel bad behavior. It's not going to set you free. You glance, and then you come back to here, and you stare at Jesus Christ. It's the difference between staring at a sacrifice of sin and shame, like, oh, yes, I'm going to embrace that, and somehow I think magically I'm going to change and be filled with the power of the Spirit, or I'm going to embrace Jesus Christ and hear about his amazing, phenomenal love for me. You glance and go, okay, Kobe Bryant, um, we are all deeply saddened and shocked, particularly if you're a basketball fan like me for my entire life. I couldn't believe it. I walked out of a meeting last Sunday, and I hit my phone. I I was like, this has got to be a joke. Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and a number of other people on a helicopter died. Now, if you are a basketball fan or you just kind of follow what's going on in the world, you know that Kobe Bryant, early in his career, uh, had some issues. And, you know, he he had one terrible issue, uh, bad, really bad, Uh, about the way he treated women. And if you've listened to any of the radio stations this past week or you've watched ESPN or something, you know that most commentators have dealt with that. And they'll say how hard he worked. He dealt with it. He said, yes, it was wrong. uh, He dealt with it. But then he worked really hard at changing. And he, he came up with an alter ego. Anybody know what the name of that alter ego is? The Black Mamba. And he said he had to do this because he would go into stadiums 
all over the United States of America, and people were just heaping shame on him. He said, I had to come up with an alter ego because I was going to be crushed under the weight of all those shameful things. And he said, if I was actually going to change and become better, become a better person, I was going to have to listen to something different than what all the message was coming to him. So he came up with this alter ego. And you know what's fascinating? Everybody says it. I mean, at one point his wife was going to divorce him, and he like said, I promise I'll change. And then everybody says that no one was. He worked really hard at changing. And the thing that's going on right now is hashtag girl, girl dad, right? Have you seen hashtag girl dad? To honor Kobe for his four daughters, for the loving relationship that he had with them, that he worked super, super hard. And one of the reasons he's on helicopters all the time, because he wanted to quickly, with all the California traffic, get back to his family. So he did make a change, but he didn't make a change by shaming himself. We need to be very careful that we're not doing it. So here's your only fill in the blank today, and we're almost done. A love story is a renewal story. A love story is a renewal story. Said this last week. This is so important. Every single creation story, ancient creation story, starts out this way. This is the way the world is. Uh, Not good, but better just live with it. That's the way every single one. Here's the thing that's totally unique about the Bible, the book of Genesis. Said it started out perfect, and then it went horribly wrong. Made some bad decisions, and went horribly wrong. But that's not the intended thing. So this is a renewal story. A love story is a renewal story. The word renewal means to return things back to the state that they were originally intended to be, that there's been, there's been an interruption. And now we're going to return them back. We're going to return them back. It's a renewal story. This is who you are. This is what this is all about. And that we are to spread the good news about the love of Christ, not shame, but about the amazing, amazing, amazing love of Christ. We have to be very careful very careful. I I shared this story a few weeks ago. I'll say it again now. I was having a conversation with a churchgoer. We were talking about the amazing thing that happened in the late 60s, early 70s. There was a move of God. I mean, throughout this country, it was absolutely amazing. And it started with a bunch of LSD, pot-smoking hippies in California. Spread all the way down the California coast, shot all the way across America. All kinds of amazing things happened. God did awesome things. And I told them the story, which is a very long story. I gave them all the details. I was reading the book. And then their first words out of their mouth is, they did all stop smoking uh, drugs, right? I'm like, are you serious? That's your first response. You're so caught up with sin and shame that you think for some reason we are going to generate an outpouring of the Holy Spirit by focusing on they stop smoking drugs, right? And our culture, as Brown says, we think, because we're swimming in shame, we think that somehow we're going to transform our lives and the lives of other people by talking about sin and shame. We're not going to do that. She says, we have to swim hard upstream. And this is what Christ is calling us to do. Matthew 28, it's the great mission. Go and teach people about Jesus. Teach that story. Now, we call that the Great Commission. Actually, everybody, it's not the, it is the Great Commission, but it's not the first Great Commission. The first Great Commission is all the way the beginning in Bible, Genesis 128, be fruitful and multiply. And from a first century Jewish perspective, they knew that they were to be temple builders, that they were to take the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his love and to share it broadly. And that's why the church was so amazingly effective. Will you be a temple builder? Now, I've got to do one last thing, okay? Harrison, can you bring that tree out? Give me three minutes. Super Bowl doesn't kick off till 625. All I need. I need three minutes. I need three minutes. I've got to talk to you about this. Thank you, Harrison. Everybody give Harrison a round of applause. Let me get rid of this for just, just a second. I'll talk about this tree. Okay, Uh, now, in Mark's version, everybody, 
about Jesus in the temple situation. In Mark's version, his biography, before uh, the temple and after, Jesus deals with a tree. He deals with a fig tree. And he goes up to this fig tree and it doesn't have any fruit on it. And he gets upset and he curses it. Then he goes in the temple, he does the deal in the temple, runs out all the animals, flips over the table, comes back out, and the tree, the fig tree, has withered. And the disciples are like, oh man, wow. And Jesus says, yeah, if you have faith, you can move mountains. And then he just rolls on. Now, I was talking to a buddy in my community group, and he's like, he's a Navy guy, and he says, I was out on a Navy ship one time, and I was in a Bible study with church people and people who had never been to church before in their life. And They didn't have any problem with the virgin birth. They didn't have any problem with walking on water. They didn't have any problem with the resurrection. None, they had any problem. But the cursing of the fig tree was a big problem. Like, why did he do that? Why does he pick on this poor little tree? What is the deal? I don't know. Navy people might be tree huggers. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying that this causes some people major problems. Can I explain something from a first century Jewish perspective about the fig tree to you? Okay. The fig tree in the Bible to a Jewish person represents the tree that they ate from in the garden. Now, in America, we tend to think it was an apple. It wasn't an apple. Jewish people believe that it was a fig. It was a fig from a fig tree. I know this isn't a fig tree, but work with me. Because we're told in Genesis 3 that after they ate from the tree, that they sewed figs together, fig leaves, fig leaves together, to cover their shame. And if you read some of the Jewish writings about this, one of them is called The Life of Adam and Eve, you'll read there that they say they were filled with shame and they took these fig leaves and they tried to cover up their shame, but it would not work. They would not work. The other thing that we need to know about the fig leaves, other than the fact it doesn't really cover because it's small, is that the leaves on a fig tree actually irritate your skin. They give you a rash. They make you feel terrible. So by embracing this, this is what they did. Well, this is the answer out. This is the answer for us. We need to embrace this tree of shame and cover ourselves. That Actually, that leads to nothing but misery and irritation and rashes, and it can never cover up because the leaves are so small. So Jesus walks up to the fig tree before he goes into the temple. It doesn't have any fruit on it, so he curses it. Because actually embracing our sin and shame won't make us feel better. It won't fill us up. It's not going to make the change we're looking for in our life. It's not going to satisfy us. We think it will, but it won't satisfy us. We can't embrace our sin and shame and say, yes, that's going to get it. That's what he's saying. So he goes into the temple and he comes back out after he flips the table. and He says, you have got to start. And the whole thing had withered down. And fallen down. And here's the message for all of us. If you're looking at your sin and shame thinking that you're going to be everything that Jesus Christ wants you to be, you got to stop that. You got to stop shaming yourself. You got to deal with it, but then you got to look back ahead and you got to look at the court. Can't look at this. If you're shaming other people thinking, oh man, that's going to change them. They're going to transform. They're going to become great. Boy, they're going to really love Jesus when I keep focusing on their sin and shame. Not going to work. The church has been called as a community, as a called out group of people with a great mission to tell people about the love of Jesus Christ because only that has the power to change. Just like Jesus flipped the tables, you have got to take this and flip it down and stop talking about it because the Bible and the Gospel of John is the most influential book in the history of the world. It has power to change. Please stop shaming yourself. 
please don't think that's going to make you be everything God's called you to be. And please don't carry that message to other people. It won't work. You've been called to something far, far, far greater. Now, I've printed on your bulletin, or it's going to be on the screen before you, a prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. And I would like us to conclude with this prayer. Would you please join me in praying this prayer, everybody? And before we pray, I'll say this. Man, if you, if you want to take up this calling to do this, and you want us to pray for you, put it on your connect card in the blue bulletin. If you want to jump in on this great mission, and you've never done it before, and finally today you're like, oh yeah, I get it. I understand what Jesus is about. Please consider joining our prayer team over there. We'd be happy to pray with you or fill out your connect card that you want to follow Jesus Christ on this great mission and the staff will pray for you on Tuesday or let us know how we can serve you. Now, can we pray this prayer together? It's an awesome prayer by St. Francis. Here we go. One, two, three. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Amen. Thank you.